my family. As y'all can see, I'm a little disheveled from that worship. Had to change my fit. Couldn't find the mic. You ever been in a place on worship where you're just trying to locate your edges or your, your hair or whatever else it is? I don't really have to locate my hair. It's pretty short, but sometimes I have to locate myself because the presence of the Lord is so strong. And uh, I just asked my friends to stay up because I feel like what I'm going to say is going to be just a continuation of worship, if that makes sense. Um, and oftentimes when you go to heights in the place of God's presence, you think, man, just forget the word. Let's just go for it. But there's something powerful about teaching in the glory and teaching in God's presence. When he's waiting in a room, it's like the words he says cut so deep. And so in that moment, I was like, yeah, I think he has something he wants to say. Um, and uh, as was said earlier, first of all, it's just such an honor to be here and honor to be trusted with this opportunity and uh, with the pleasure of speaking to you the first day of Black History Month. It's such a hollowed space. And uh, I went back and forth a whole lot on what to say, but the Lord and I had a really intense conversation about a few things last night. Uh, and he started speaking really clearly about what he wanted to say, I think, to this people. Um, for the season you're stepping into, because you guys are all in different walks and areas of life and spaces and places, and you're here because you have a calling and a destiny. You're here because God has called you for a specific time, and you may think that your place here is by accident, by happenstance. You may have come here because it was, um, you know, just the best option, or you might have come here not knowing what your future held and trying to discover it. But I do feel today there's a word specifically to anchor and to align those with great purpose and great destiny. And so um, my, my only ask of you as I speak is for you um, to give me what I like to call talk back. So I tell people all the time I'm um, Pentabaptist and uh, pretty much every denomination in between in my family's history. But what is true among all of them is that the more you shout me down, the more anointed I'll feel. So if you could do me the favor, don't think you're interrupting me or making me feel disrespected. It makes me feel really comfortable. Um, if, you, if, if I say something that bears witness with you, just say, man, that was good. You know, y'all know. Y'all know how to get down. So we'll get into this word. If you can, um, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. Um, yeah, we're, um, I'm just going to read it. I don't have a lot of time. And if you don't get there really quickly, it's okay. It'll be in your spirit. Um, and we'll just get into the word, okay? Reading a few verses of scripture. Um, this is out of New King James. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came upon me to eat of my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. 
He shall set me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing praises to the Lord. I don't have a title for this yet, but hopefully it will be discovered as I speak. So you'll know how to head your notes probably in the next 10 minutes or so. Sounds good? Okay. Um, you guys can keep playing if you don't want to. It's okay. But it feels nice. So, you know, it's completely up to you, though. No pressure. Um, this scripture is one of my favorites in the Bible. And it's a fascinating one for me because it finds a man we're familiar with, a man we've heard a lot about, named David, in a unique predicament, a unique season of his life. And it's a season that could be described by many as a season of difficulty. Not just regular difficulty, but difficulty that I describe as beyond comprehension. Many scholars believe that the setting of this scripture is David's exile. He writes this psalm, many believe, to be on the heels of Saul chasing him on an attempt to assassinate him. And in the middle of this prophetic poem, David kind of takes us into the inner sanctum of his heart. He shows us what's going on on the deeper places. And he shows us a truth that's familiar but often played down. And because I don't have a lot of time, I would really dress this up, take you on a whole journey, make it sound really fancy with my words. But the truth of the matter is to get to the point, what David shows us is that if you're going to follow God into anything, if you're going to do anything for God, if you're going to commit yourself to God in any way, you will have to confront the temptation to be afraid. Fear is, I believe, the threshold of destiny. If you look through scripture, you see where people like Gideon, people like Moses, even people like Elijah um, had to have confrontations that resulted in the, the crystallizing of their purpose. And in that framework, the threshold that they had to cross over was their fears. Often angels or voices or burning bushes or winds or fires came to them in great extravagance and demonstrative behavior simply to confront the areas where they were afraid. And uh, I think our generation can relate to David, can relate to Moses, can relate to Gideon, can relate to Samuel, can relate to Elijah in the fact that fear is a great temptation. And uh, like I said, this is a message to those who have purpose, to those who have destiny. And if fear, confronting fear is a threshold of destiny, then all of us will have to do so at some point. And I believe that this hour of your life, this, this area in your history, fear is probably a really prevalent idea. So much of the framework of your life is built around it. And if there's one fear that I think plagues our generation more than anything, it's fear of the future. Um, I think this stage of life, if you're in college, if you're freshly out of college, if you're kind of around even as faculty, as, as people associated with any of the respective ministries represented today, this stage of life, there's an interesting tension that you can experience. One, on, the, on one side, you see like that the possibilities are endless. Opportunities abound. The world is your oyster. But on the other side, there is a nagging frustration that turns into complication in the mind and, and even for some turns into torment built around the idea of, am I making the right decision? Am I uh, going in the right direction? Am I doing the best job that I can, but ultimately am I headed in a direction that is destructive for my life? 
how can I trust the path that I'm on? How can I trust the decisions that I'm making? And this frustration starts to develop into a, literally a perspective governed by worry. How many know that fear can literally govern the way you think, can govern the way that you behave, can govern the way that you decide, can govern the way you pray, it can govern the way you preach, it can govern the way you study, it can govern the way you have conversations with friends and family, even romantic partners, um, but also it can govern your actions that many in the culture would consider to be courage. And this is contradictory because it doesn't, isn't the opposite of fear courage. So you would think that they would never be associated in similarity. But what I believe, just in my own personal study of my life and the life of others, is that much of what we call courage is actually fear wearing a mask. If I, um, like I said, I don't really have a lot of time, but I want to press into this because I feel like this is for somebody in the room. There's a man in the New Testament, one of my favorite characters because he's relatable in the demonstration of his humanity. His name is Peter. And uh, Peter was a little bit rough around the edges. And uh, we see in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane, in the middle of Jesus's moment of truth, Peter acts out in a pretty um, enraged manner when the um, people come to arrest Jesus and literally slices Malchus's, the, the um, officer's ear off, right? Now, that seems pretty bold in the face of a delegated authority, right, to, to act in that level of aggression. And many would not think that fear was Peter's problem. But within hours of that action, he found himself in a courtyard being asked if he was a follower of Jesus. And instead of keeping that same energy, he responds with, I don't know that man. And a few expletives that I can't say up here, and I wouldn't say, due to the consecration of my lips. But what needs to be understood, this is serious. If Peter was truly courageous, then he wouldn't have just acted out in aggression. He would have stood in the face of opposition. And it takes more strength and more courage to endure than it does to act out. So much of what we call courage is actually fear masquerading. Does that make sense? Peter may have been acting out in anger and aggression because truthfully he was afraid. He was afraid of what was about to take place. He was afraid of what was going to happen. He was afraid of what would have happened with his life. And many of us in our culture, I think, behave the same way. We make wild decisions. We go in all different kinds of directions. We make uh, all different kinds of statements and engage in conversations. And for many, they wouldn't think that fear is at the bottom of it. But the truth is so much of our behavior is acting out the reality that we're afraid. And the issue when we discuss fear, I think even in discipleship context, is that we treat fear oftentimes as though it's irrational, as though it's unfounded. But if this scripture, Psalm 27, is true, then it works best, fear works best when there's a real reason to be afraid. It's not like David was sitting in his house having a good time playing video games. He was in a cave on the run from the king of Israel. Armies wanting his life, wanting to end him at the first opportunity they got. So you could say it's fair to be afraid in a scenario like that, right? You could even say if you were in his position, you'd be afraid too. I mean, listen, I'm a pretty bold guy, but if the president of the United States um, had literally released um, kind of an execution order and said, if you find Jonathan Stamper, you know, I wouldn't feel really comfortable. You know what I mean? And if most of us were in his position, we'd probably feel paralyzed, petrified. 
And that's how we respond to most of our fears, right? When fear is really strong, it paralyzes you. It makes you so petrified you don't know where to go, what to do, right? It makes you unable to move in one direction or the other. But when David finds himself in this place, his response is actually the opposite. His response is confidence. He describes how the Lord is his light and whom shall he fear. The Lord is his strength. He won't be afraid. In this I shall be confident. And I spent time reading the scripture trying to understand how in the middle of a moment where his fear would have been so justifiable, he wasn't afraid. Where he had the discipline to crucify his fear and to live in a position of boldness and courage that allowed him to stand in integrity, that allowed him to stay free from compromise, that allowed him to stay consistent in his prayer life, that allowed him to stay consistent in his consecration. I was like, how could he not be afraid? And I found the answer. Like I said, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to get to it, okay? The answer was in his desires. He responds to this framework in verse 3, and then you read it in verse 4. Although an army may camp against me, justifiable fear, my heart shall not fear. Though war may arise against me, another justifiable fear. In this, I shall be confident. In other words, this is the reason why I'm not scared. This is the reason why no matter what they say to me, no matter how they threaten me, I'll be okay. And it's not because I'm really strong. It's not because I saved the five smooth stones that I dealt with Goliath with. It's not because I'm popular. It's not because I'm handsome. It's not because I'm anointed. It's not because I have Instagram followers or Twitter followers or TikTok followers. The reason why is because of what I want. Like I said, I don't really have time to preach the way that I want to, but I want to tell you in this room, if you're going through any kind of war in your life, if you're dealing with a difficulty, if you're dealing with chaos and calamity and confusion, if you're dealing with frustration, and tension and trouble on every side, what you've got to understand is your war is over what you want. Your war is actually over what you want. It's not over just your abilities and, and, and your speaking engagements. It's not over your degree or your pedigree. Your war is over what you want. The culture is trying to fight a war against what you want. The enemy is trying to fight a war in your life over what you want. So the question I want to pose to you is simple. If you're going through anything, can anybody raise your hand? If you're going through anything you wouldn't prefer, if you're wrestling through any kind of fears in your life of where I'm headed or where I'm going or who can I trust or what is this all amounting to, I have a question for you that I think may begin the settling of the issue in your heart, which is this. You can write it down for reflection, devotional time possibly over the next few days. What do you want? What do you really want? Not what do you think you want. Not what do you want to let other people know you want. Not even what you should want as a Christian or as a good man or good woman. What do you actually want? Because the warfare in your life, I believe, is designed to reveal what you want. And the key to victory is being honest first about what's really in there. The Bible says that if any man says he's tempted, don't say it's because of God. He's actually driven away by the desires in his own heart. Now, all temptation is not warfare, and all warfare is not temptation. But it's the principle that applies. Most of the victory that people have in temptation is when they can be honest about what they actually want, what's really going on on the inside. 
And most people's victory in warfare comes from that place. But not just a general desire, because there's a whole lot of things you could want. You could want peace. You could want security. You could want a 401k. You could want a big name. You could want a stage. You could want a family. You could want um, big Christmas dinners. You know what I mean? Whatever it is. But I believe that there's a desire that becomes a plumb line in the heart of a Christian, of a believer, and it's the desire that Jesus wants to awaken in a generation that will give them victory over every war in their life. I really wish I had the time to preach. If you have the right desires, you'll never lose a war ever again. When you allow yourself to get real about what you want and allow your desires to be discipled by the hand of God, you'll live in a constant state of victory. And David shows us how to do it because the thing he wants is the one thing. Man, okay, it's all right. I don't have much time, so hopefully you'll, um, you'll go with me. The reason why David was not broken, was not shattered, was not afraid, was not hiding, was because there was only one thing he wanted. And no matter what warfare was thrown his way, it could not affect what he wanted. It couldn't threaten what he actually wanted. There was no possibility of losing the thing he actually wanted. If David wanted popularity, the warfare would have won. If David even wanted the kingdom, the warfare would have won. But there was only one thing that David wanted, and it made him literally outside of susceptibility to the warfare of his generation and everything that wanted to take him out. And it was the one thing. He wanted to dwell. Oh, my goodness. He wanted to dwell. He wanted to be in the presence of God. He wanted Jesus. He wanted the hand of God. And that was all he was after. It was cool to kill Goliath, but he wasn't after victory in war. It was cool to be the king of Judah, but he wasn't after authority. The one thing he wanted was to dwell in the presence of the Lord, to behold his beauty, and to inquire in his temple. And I believe God wants to awaken a one thing cry in this generation amongst leaders of purpose and destiny of amongst great gifts and great intelligence and and even genius right there's one thing if you set your life to pursue this one thing it will set your life on a trajectory called victory forever you'll always win the war if all you want is him man okay You can write that down if you want. You'll always win the war if all you want is him. This is what Jesus is doing in this generation. He's revealing the frailty of every other desire. He's revealing the simple nature and the inability to satisfy the longing in the heart of everything that you could want other than him. Even things that look good, even things that have a Christian name to them, even things that have a ministry designation, even things that have a 501c3, everything that is not him is revealing itself to be empty and worthless in comparison to the pursuit of his presence. And what this shows us is that when you set yourself to one thing, the reason why you win your war is because you are immune to confusion. This is really, 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 really important. He says the reason, at the beginning of Psalm 27, David says, the reason why I don't have to be afraid is because the Lord is my light, right? So if the one thing is the reason why he's, afraid, he's not afraid, 
And he's not afraid because the Lord is his light. That means that they're together. Which means that when he sets his heart to want only Jesus, the light comes on. And where there was confusion, there is clarity. That's why Jesus said, if your eye be single, your whole body is full of light, which means that if you only want him, you'll never live in a state of confusion. The reason why you're in confusion is because you got competing desires. And if you be honest about what's going on in your heart, you get to clarity a whole lot quicker. Okay. Listen, every time I was confused, the truth was I wanted something other than him. And I didn't know how to admit that what I actually wanted was security and all I actually wanted was peace. And all I actually wanted was a platform and all I actually wanted was a stage. But as soon as I set my heart to say, no matter what comes and no matter what goes, all I want is you. It felt like the plumb line started to come. Okay. The reason why the disciples were so dangerous in the book of Acts was not because they were anointed. It wasn't because they could heal the sick. It wasn't because they could raise the dead. It wasn't because they could preach messages that got hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. It's because they only wanted one thing. So if you threaten them with prison, they didn't want freedom. They wanted him. You could threaten them with persecution. But they didn't want comfort. They wanted him. You could even threaten them with death. But they did not want life outside of him. That's the reason why the Pharisees were so scared. That's the reason why Caiaphas was so scared. And that's the reason why Caesar was so scared. Because I can threaten other people with money. And I can threaten other people with clothes. And I can threaten other people with platform. And I can threaten other people with position. And I can threaten other people with stages. And I can threaten other people with money. But I can't do nothing to these guys. Because the only thing they want. I said the only thing. I told you not to do it. I said the only thing I want. I feel the help coming. The only thing I want is him. You can take this from me. You can take this from me. But the only thing I, as long as I've got him, as long as I've got him, I'm going to be fine. You might not like me. You might not invite me back. You might not think my songs are anointed. But as long as I've got him, that's why David in Psalm 51, in the middle of his deepest brokenness, even after he fell to the greatest temptation, he didn't ask for the kingdom back. He didn't ask for his position back. He didn't ask for his popularity. He said, you can throw all that away, but take not. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, I know the Bible says that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, but that's not the point of that scripture. What he's trying to tell you is that even in the moment of your greatest brokenness, the place where freedom comes is when you set yourself to say, no matter what you take from me, no matter what the consequences of the place that I'm headed or the place that I'm going, there's only one thing I want. And as long as that's not threatened, I'm going to be grounded. I'm going to have my seat and I'm going to stand in the midst of the war fair in the midst of the chaos in the midst of the confusion because all I want is one thing I said all I want is one thing and the problem with our generation is that it's hard to only want one thing it's so hard to want only one thing because there are so many things that seem enticing 
And there's so many things that try to offer you security. And there's so many things that are even wise to pursue, right? The Bible says that a man who doesn't provide for his family is even worse than an unbeliever. But the Bible also says that the love of money is the root of all evil. So how do I pursue money without making it my God? And how do I pursue integrity and excellence without keeping it out of the position of Jesus in my life? It's a difficulty. It's a tension. It's a frustration. Many of us live in this place of, man, I don't want to be an idolater. I'm just trying to live a practical life. Am I the only one who struggles sometimes with no? I don't, I don't love money, but it would be nice to know my bills are paid. No, I don't want popularity, but it would, it would be nice to know that all the study and all the practice, people are even paying attention. I'm in the tension. I don't want to have an idol, but at the same time, what is the difference between idolatry and good stewardship? Oh, come on. This is, am I the only one who deals with this? I don't think so. There's a frustration because I want to have a pure heart and I want to have clean hands, but I also live in the real world and I live with practicality and I, and I can't feed myself on, on good ideas and wishes and hopes. I can feed myself on faith, but the Bible says faith without works is dead. So how do I balance being under grace and not working and not striving with being a protector of precision and discipline in my life? How do you establish a one-thing paradigm in your heart? The answer, I believe, is in 1 John. Because the one thing is what keeps you out of fear, which means the one thing is a lifestyle free from the, the snare of fear. 1 John says this, that there is no fear in love. A perfect love casts out fear, which means that if you're going to be free from fear, you need an encounter with perfect love. You need love to fill your heart at a level that you didn't even know was possible. Because when love fills your heart, there's a few things that happen. Anybody ever been in love before? It's okay. It's all right. You know, it's all good. We've all been there. Most of us have been there at some point in our life. You know, being in love is good. Nothing wrong with it. Hopefully it ends up in marriage, you know, all that good stuff. That being said, though, it seems like when you love something and when you experience love at a deep level, it puts your priorities in order. It seems like things that mattered when you were single don't matter. When you find somebody you want to attach yourself with forever. And to the world and to the culture, it might seem dumb, it might seem foolish, it might seem selfish, but love became a plumb line. Oh, I wish I had the time to preach it. When you really experience love for real, it seems like things that used to be so important don't even matter anymore. I used to care so much about what I looked like, but when I found out somebody loved me, I don't care what you think about me because I already... Love became a plumb line, and it revealed my priorities. But the other thing it did is it gives me grace for my journey. When I get love perfectly, I'm free from the snare of criticism, which means I don't have to be afraid of getting it wrong. Because for most people who are afraid of getting it wrong, it's because they're afraid that getting them it wrong will make them lose everything. But when you're loved well, you know that no matter how much you get wrong, you won't lose him. 
no matter how many journeys you take to try to figure out the right way. I'm not talking about sin, right? But I'm talking about trying to figure out the steps for your life and the direction that you're headed. Breaking the fear of the future. Where you know you're loved, you know it doesn't matter if you got it wrong. He's going to direct you. And the Bible says that all things work together. Even what was meant for evil, God can turn around. So when you're loved well, everything becomes clear. Does that make sense? So I want to pray for you. It's literally the end of my sermon. I don't have anything else, nothing more fancy. But what I want to pray is that you would have an encounter with perfect love that would set your life on the track of the one thing. Does that make sense? Because you have a lot of options in this world. There's a lot of things that people are offering you. But when you encounter the love of Jesus for real, it'll purify your desires. And all of a sudden, clarity will come. And you'll know where to go. And you'll know what to do. Okay? So can we just stand all across the room? I know um, we're closing soon. Um, I, mean, I don't know how we're going to close it out, but I just want us to pray. Can anybody relate to this? Where they're like, man, I've been afraid. And I, need, I know I need a love upgrade in my life. I know I need the Holy Spirit to reveal the love of God to me, to open up clarity like I've never had. So I'd love to pray for you if that's okay. Just lift your hands if this is for you. Jesus Thank you for these ones. Thank you for their vulnerability. Thank you for their openness and their honesty, their willingness to come honest before you, come boldly before you in truth. And we ask you, Lord, that you would deal with every fear, every area of torment, every area of trepidation, every place where there is a snare because of the fear of man or because of the fear of getting it wrong. We pray right now in Jesus' name that the power of the love of God through the Holy Spirit will come and meet them at the place of their very need. Lord Jesus, we ask you that clarity will begin to come as they establish their life on your love. And I pray, Jesus, that they would experience a love so strong and so powerful and so violent and so aggressive that it removes every competing ideology and every competing priority and every competing um, direction for their life until all they want and all that matters is you and every pursuit that they have and every direction they want to go in their life bows its knee to the one thing until every um, everything they could do with their degree and every um, everything they could get in money and status and fame and, uh, and, and stability and security and romance God I pray that it will all bow to the one thing as they encounter the love of God on a level that they knew not possible and every place where they not believe that they're able to be loved or believe that they're worthy of love or believe that you could possibly love them with as much brokenness or as much difficulty or even as much doubt and inconsistency that they might experience. We pray that your mercy would wash over their minds and that they would be renewed to the truth of the gospel, that they don't have to perform for your love. They don't have to strive for your love, but that you freely give it. And it's the fuel for their future. It's the uh, literally, it's the diesel for their destiny. It's the gas in the tank for the place that they're called to go. Because no matter how much they try and fail and no matter how many mistakes they make one thing will be true and will always be true which is that they are loved by the father they are loved by Jesus and nothing they can do can separate them from that love till we pray will wash over them today that as they go to their classes and they and they continue with the conference Lord Jesus that they would be enraptured by your love and that your love would set them on the one thing trajectory until 
everything in their life becomes clear. And even what they don't know, they understand. And they know what they don't need to know because they trust you. Thank you, Lord, for your blood that sets us free to be loved by you. And we pray that we live in that love for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.